0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christianity Saturdays. Today is Saturday, November 4th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This is our report on the Shelbyville White Lives Matter Rally, which we attended last week. I'll have a lot of, um, the report itself isn't really that long. It's only a few pages. I'll have a lot of extraneous information. This won't be one of my longer programs. It was a short rally, right? I don't want to beat dead horses interminably. If we truly believe in our cause, that it is good for our people, then we have to call to attention. We have to call attention to our cause. And while the Internet is a wonderful tool, by itself the Internet is not enough. And if there is any wonder whether our struggle is real, whether our enemy is tangible, all one has to do is look at what is being taught in our schools, or at what is being printed in the media daily. Only four days ago, Fox News ran an article with the headline, Having White nuclear family. Promotes white supremacy, says New York professor. In part, the article said that a City University of New York sociology professor reportedly said in a tweet storm last week that the white nuclear family promotes racism, prompting a backlash on social media. Jessie Daniels, described as an expert on the Internet manifestations of racism on her page at the City of New, University of New York, infuriated social media on her website page, infuriated social media users after reportedly saying that white families promote racism by default the professor began her argument saying she learned that the white nuclear family is one of the most powerful forces supporting white supremacy adding that families reproducing white children are part of the problem as they facilitate white supremacy in the country So as long as white babies are born and as long as whites exist as a result whites will be supreme this professor is obviously admitting that white people are naturally superior to others we knew that already but is that by itself a good reason to hate whites or to prevent whites from being born if someone realized this and they really wanted a better world. They would actively encourage the birth of more and more whites. That is what we try to do. But this professor opposes all rational thinking by seeking to encourage whites to disinherit their own children for fear of being racist. This is not an isolated incident. We frequently see similar comments from academics in social media, or from Jews in mainstream media. And the curriculum in most schools and at all grade levels also reflects this same assault on both white racial identity and on traditional family values. But of course, most identity Christians have known these things already for decades, so this is nothing new to any of us and this is only one aspect of the persistent attacks on our race and our culture which we see emanate very frequently from Jewry and also from institutions such as even the Catholic Church while this so-called professor was met by opposition to her Twitter propaganda These must be the values which she also espouses to her students. And the school she teaches at must approve of them, since she is still employed. Jessie Daniels has a Ph.D. from a Texas university and has also worked at other institutions. But in spite of her openly racist comments, she is still employed at Hunter College, a part of the City University of New York. The Daily Mail in Britain also ran the story, and under the headline described Daniel's remarks as having blasted white families for having children, a form of white supremacy, and as having called on white people to disinherit children and give homes away when they die, ostensibly to non-whites. Jesse Daniels is obviously a racist, But from what we have found, there have been no calls for the termination of Daniel's employment. Of course, they would probably be futile anyway. I mean, this is New York we're talking about. We can find at least a couple of men who have been terminated from their employment as mundane laborers simply for attending the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. But this professor can say whatever she wants about white people, and she can teach those things to students in the course of her employment. And she continues safely in her well-paid position, where she actually gets paid for indoctrinating young people with her anti-white nonsense. In addition, other educators in her field read her books and teach many of the same things to their own students. This is the situation all over America. While Jesse Daniels is not alone in her endeavor, she is exemplary of that spiritual wickedness in high places that Paul of Tarsus had warned Christians to struggle against, and struggle against it we must. Jesse Daniels certainly is doing the bidding of the rulers of the darkness of this world. This is why we must continue to do the things that we do, because we have to go beyond the Internet to raise awareness to our cause. We have to operate in the real world if we are going to confront that real-world wickedness, and not merely hide behind a keyboard. Jessie Daniels can get her books published without resistance. On the other hand, I'm looking for a new publisher because mine canceled our account because after Charlottesville some anonymous individual claimed to be offended as long as the majority of white people in this country can hear Jessie Daniels simply because of her employment while we are suppressed their lives and the lives of their children are in grave danger we would be accomplices if we did nothing. While it is certain that some of them may come across a website like or on the Internet or even Occidental Descent, the odds of them actually reading or listening and understanding are quite small. It is far more likely that they will remain caught up in the mainstream media and supposed educational institutions that employ an army of people such as Jesse Daniels. And if it were up to people such as Daniels, the trumpeted expert on the Internet manifestations of racism, we would probably not even have a website. It is obvious to us that one of the objectives of Jesse Daniels's work is to deprive us of that. While she herself spews anti-white racism freely in social media. So if we are going to raise awareness to our cause, we have to take to the streets. And we have to do it in diverse places. The more of us who do so, the better off we shall be and the more exposure we shall get in the enemy media. And I will talk more about the enemy media later. First, I would like to say a few words about our own media. While we have media, since the events of Charlottesville, there has been a lot of talk about optics, which really seems like a word adopted for peculiar purposes by metrosexual tarts, where they actually mean appearances. But the word has actually had this manner of use in mainstream culture for some time at dictionary.com it is given a secondary definition as the way a situation, action, event is perceived by the public or by a particular group of people now regardless of how long the term has been used in this fashion arguing over optics is vanity in the first place because the enemy media portrays any event in a manner by which they can promote their own anti-white agenda. It doesn't matter what optics we have. So long as we carry our message and carry it with sincerity, the media is going to slam us. Before we discuss Shelbyville, we must note that the optics debate includes complaints from certain factions about the League of the South and other such groups, about the flags, about the clothes, about the insignia and shields and helmets, things which were obviously an asset at Charlottesville. But after Shelbyville, Some people even complained about the so-called Roman salute as if we should abandon all of our historic customs for fear of avoiding some sissy's embarrassment. Some clowns would go so far as to suggest that we wear suits and ties and attempt to emulate the appearance of Boca Raton real estate salesmen or Manhattan financial advisors. If we are going to do that, we may as well join Jared Taylor's pro-Sodomite, pro-Jewish American Renaissance. But I think we would rather all die in the streets with our Confederate flags than to be found confederated with fags. In our opinion, the League of the South has the best optics on the right. And we would encourage them to maintain their appearance and their flags and their symbols at all costs. But it is not our purpose to join in the debate about optics at all. I was never fascinated with the idea of wearing uniforms, of playing dress-up, or as the Richard Spencer crowd would prefer, playing dress-up Barbie. However, the benefit of a particular group wearing uniform clothing in a situation like Charlottesville, is recognized immediately by those who have actually been in such a situation. The supposed men who argue about optics sound like a gaggle of whining bitches arguing about the color and style of their bridesmaid dresses. Those arguments should remain on the preppy alt-right, and should not even be considered by real men. With this, we shall present our report on the events at Shelbyville. (coughs) We've titled this Shelbyville, Words in the Wind, for better or worse. The cold damn Tennessee morning, the sun hidden behind dense clouds, felt more like mid-December than it did late October. So the mood probably did not appear as upbeat as it actually may have been, as we gathered in the parking lot of an Antioch home improvement store. However, it became apparent later that the same exuberant spirit which we saw in our fellows at Charlottesville certainly was present. It was only temporarily obscured by the unseasonable weather. This morning, one week later, as I wrote this, it is 25 degrees warmer in Antioch, than it was a week ago on the day of our rally. A long caravan of vehicles soon pulled out of the lot, and it was just over an hour before we would arrive in Shelbyville. The news of our coming had been announced in the local media for days, and from passing cars we received both enthusiastic approval and expressions of vitriol. But the approval was indeed more frequent the operations people already knew where to park. A large local municipal lot was cleared out for our use. As we pulled our jeep into the lot, it became apparent rather quickly that unlike New Orleans and Charlottesville, here the state would manage and supervise practically every detail of our activities. It was like going to a prison function something I'm quite familiar with. Gathering for the march to the demonstration site, it was readily apparent that something was amiss. We didn't see any people. There were plenty of us, at least two hundred and probably closer to three hundred from the League of the South, the Traditional Workers Party, and the National Socialist Movement, and a few smaller groups. There were dozens of policemen, or perhaps more than dozens, There were also cops with sniper rifles set up on tripods on various porches and rooftops. Three helicopters and a large military-type drone were buzzing around overhead. The state was doing its best to impress us with its overwhelming power. But one important element was missing. There were no other people, or normies, as they are called in the right-wing social media circles. There were no average everyday people who would be expected to be moving around near a busy downtown business district on a Saturday morning. First we paused for a prayer and then from the parking lot we filed out into West Holland Street and down North Cannon Boulevard. Except for us and the police who were stationed all around the perimeter The streets were virtually empty. Evidently, they had all been closed off long before our arrival. On our march to the designated demonstration area, we didn't get very far at all, and the barricades funneled us into a police checkpoint. No weapons, no water, not even a cigarette lighter would be allowed beyond that point. Even innocuous items, such as a keychain amulet I had in the shape of an iron cross were being classified as weapons and were not allowed into the demonstration area. I threw my keychain on a table and told the short pudgy female cop to keep it. Others volunteered to surrender similar items rather than bring them all the way back to their vehicles. The checkpoint charade, the metal detectors and pat-downs must have taken well over an hour for us and perhaps two hours for the entire group. My first impression is probably correct, that this certainly seemed to be a ploy to purposely waste our time. Moving on from there was a second checkpoint a half block away, which moved a little faster, but which was just as annoying. There was speculation over its purpose, and I don't know what it was but I am sure that there is one spelled out somewhere in the totalitarian population control manuals. Passing through that we were herded into an area on the southwest corner of Lane Parkway and North Cannon Boulevard. Barb's Corner Cafe a small business with a large parking lot was to our rear it was closed The counter demonstrators were across the street, on the northwest corner of the same intersection. All of the businesses lining that side of the street were also closed. Separating the two groups were rows of barricades in a line of police, both mounted and on foot. A small crowd of media photographers had cameras on tripods lined up on the northeast corner. Parked facing us on the east side of Lane Parkway, was a large armored military vehicle, positioned as if to be intimidating. Barricades and lines of policemen contained both our demonstration area and the route from the parking lot. All four corners of the intersection and large portions of the adjoining streets were also barricaded. And there was no traffic from any direction except for a few spectators who watched from a distance of perhaps a couple of hundred yards. I have photos. During the ensuing hour, the two sides hurled epithets, pejoratives, and salutations back and forth at one another, while the police guarding the barricades between them maintained stoical expressions. Finally, our side had its sound system set up, and the short list of speakers began to take turns with the microphone. The opposition did whatever they could do to drown our side out, but most of us were able to hear what was being said in the various speeches. While some of the speakers vainly attempted to address our enemies, most of the preaching was only to the choir. Looking around at the outer vicinity, a few curious curious people were gathered in diverse places to observe the spectacle from afar, but they were a very few people. I cannot speak for the League of the South. I'll never pretend to, but from my own observation, I am certain that no matter how much advanced planning the executive staff of the League can do, the state has far greater resources and can justify using them in any way that it finds expedient. So the state can always throw an unexpected curve or two and implement a plan of action that cannot be expected. Out of three demonstrations I have attended this year, NOLA, New Orleans, was by far the best policed and the most advantageous to our cause. At NOLA, we were able to present a message to any of the general public which was interested, and at the same time, there was very little violence, while the counter-demonstrators were generally held in check. In contrast, Charlottesville was nothing but a demonstration of state-sponsored anarchy and both the government and the media are still continually lying about the facts. It may be years before they are brought out in the courts, if indeed they are ever brought out at all. We cannot really expect justice in either the media or in the courts. Shelbyville was not anarchy, but instead it was state-imposed tyranny where in an evident response to Charlottesville we were put in a position of virtual isolation under the pretense of security. So the words of our speakers were little but words in the wind because no outsider who cared could possibly have heard them. None of the normies had access to hear them. For the pain of undergoing the same police checkpoints and body searches that the demonstrators had to suffer. It could be said that the opposition has the state in their pockets, because one way or another, they manage to prevent us from speaking. But that is only how it appears on the surface. Rather, it is more apparent that the state has the opposition in its pocket and purposely uses it as a tool to prevent our message from reaching the public. The result is that the normies, the average everyday people, heard nothing from us in either Charlottesville or Shelbyville. Nothing except what was presented by the local media. Virginia found one way to silence the right, and Tennessee found another at the opposite extreme. Free speech is now only valid for approved speech, and the state now uses the presence of opposition as a tool to silence dissent. But what was the real purpose of our presence? Here is a common definition for the word demonstration. The action, the first entry, the action or process of showing the existence of truth the existence or truth of something by giving proof or evidence. And that would be a small part of what we would be there for. And the second entry, a public meeting or march protesting against something or expressing views on a political issue. A public meeting or march. Of course, the second definition fits the purpose of our type of demonstration. The purpose of a demonstration is not merely to shout at one's enemies or to be shouted at in return. The purpose of a demonstration is not to put on a spectacle for all of the extra policemen that were hired for overtime pay. Rather, the purpose of a demonstration or public assembly in the First Amendment to the Constitution is to bring one's complaint to government awareness by bringing one's cause into public awareness. And that is the purpose of the First Amendment of the Constitution, to guarantee every individual citizen or any particular group of citizens the right to have its voice heard in the public arena. Imagine that every time the Republicans held a convention, I mean, we would all wish for this, right? Imagine that every time the Republicans held a convention, the Democrats forced their way in to have their own convention, in the same location, at the same time. Then imagine that nobody else was allowed to watch. The noise from the opposing sides would simply drown everyone out, and no good thing would ever be heard. Maybe it's a good thing that nothing would ever be heard that is what the situation in Shelbyville had imposed upon us but of course since Democrats and Republicans are the parties in power they make the rules to accommodate themselves or whoever they choose to accommodate and they declare as deplorable everyone whom they want to exclude from the public debate there is nothing at all in the Constitution about political parties but that does not seem to impede our oppressors. On August 12th in Charlottesville, the state of Virginia silenced us by allowing our enemies to assault us at their pleasure, then never getting an opportunity for much besides self-defense. As soon as we tried that, they used the force of the state to shut us down, arbitrarily revoking our rights to free speech and public assembly. But in Shelbyville the state silenced us by isolating us from the entire population with the exception of the same counter-protesters whose purpose it was to silence us in the first place being sectioned off and separated into two pens and isolated from the world at large all we could hear was the noise from one side or the other so just like Charlottesville the mere presence of counter-protesters succeeded in denying to us our first amendment rights to free speech and public assembly an isolated space in the out of doors is not public when it is sealed off by the state however for us Shelbyville was still a victory our purpose was to draw attention was to draw attention to the Antioch church shootings which were committed by an African immigrant And we succeeded, to a degree, in doing that. Another objective was to protest alien immigration into Middle Tennessee. And we succeeded in doing that. Recordings of League of the South President Dr. Michael Hill were played on regional television, where clips of his speeches describing the war which our people face were indeed shown to the public. Of course, the media did their most to portray Dr. Hill's words in a negative manner, but they will nevertheless help to arouse curiosity among the general population, and then people may go looking for us on the Internet. In the long run, the negative publicity published by the enemy media is a positive contribution to our efforts, simply because we are not ashamed of that message. The media only has power over us when we become afraid and ashamed of ourselves and that is not going to happen. So in the wake of Charlottesville and even though we were isolated on the streets of Shelbyville the rally was worth the the effort. The media gave us better publicity than we may have expected and in the end our message was transmitted through the efforts of our enemies. By that it reached more people than it may have had on that cold Saturday morning. We had good attendance on a weekend of not-so-good weather. And, at least in Shelbyville, we did what we had planned to do in spite of the imposed isolation. When we can make such an appearance without needing to commit any acts of violence, whether they are necessary or not, it helps to show that we are of good character in spite of the false claims of the enemy media we only resort to violence when we find it necessary for our own defense and that was true in Charlottesville in spite of the lies of the media virtually the same situation as Shelbyville also prevailed in New Orleans and the same would have happened at Charlottesville if the police there had functioned properly so in spite of the havoc which we had endured at Charlottesville, we must encourage more such activity and further demonstrations in other cities. We could have done even better, but we were foiled by a slip of a tongue. According to Hunter Wallace at the Occidental Observer website, Antioch was our real target. The plan was to go to Shelbyville and Murfreesboro, put a spotlight on refugee resettlement, and express righteous anger at the federal government, which is the purpose of a public assembly. In the evening, the plan was to go to Antioch and have a candlelight vigil at the Burnett Chapel Church of Christ, to show our grief and love for our own people. The plan was foiled, though, when Louisville Antifa caught wind of it. Fortunately, it was Hunter Wallace himself who found out that afternoon that the Louisville Antifa had heard of our anticipated appearance at the church in Antioch. And the plans by the League of the South had to be called off because the League would rather avoid the inevitable violence. Certainly, this development would be contrary to the expectations of the media. But neither would they care to publicize the choice, the choice to avoid such violence, rather than to purposely confront the anti-farm in the streets. If we had gone forward, if our leadership had gone forward with the plans, the inevitable confrontation would not have been good for our cause, regardless of how it turned out. But I won't be as kind as Hunter Wallace, and I will say that shortly after the discovery, I had learned from him that the Antifa found out our plans, because Matthew Heimbach himself, running his mouth, had prematurely divulged them to the public. And that's all I'll say about that. As for Murfreesboro... We initially thought that perhaps the long delays at the police checkpoints in Shelbyville had caused us to forgo the later appearance, which was only about 30 minutes down the road. Later, I learned that it was decided that Murfreesboro may have been a setup. In any event, it did draw a number of the opposition away from Shelbyville. So it was, at the very least, a fortuitous ploy the official statement of the League of the South on the event which was issued by Michael Hill on October 30th reads in this manner the League of the South and the Nationalist Front had a successful White Lives Matter demonstration in Shelbyville Tennessee on Saturday October 28th in all we had about 300 attendees that's the high end but it was probably very close and the event was peaceful thanks to the professionalism demonstrated by local and state law enforcement, the overbearing professionalism, I may add. Unlike Charlottesville, the peace was kept through planning and on-site action by the authorities. The only drawback, still reading from Michael Hill, the only drawback to the increased security measures was that it took us a lot of time to pass through the two checkpoints before we finally got to our rally area. Because of these delays we were not able to leave early to make our way to Henry Horton State Park for lunch and fellowship. Thus by the time we finished at the park we did not have time to go to Murfreesboro to demonstrate there. This might have been a fortunate turn of events since we had received earlier in the week actionable intelligence that said murfreesboro was a potential setup for lawsuits against the league and the other nationalist front organizations we don't want to walk into potential traps where we cannot win instead we fight battles we intend to win and shelbyville was one of these in shelbyville we got our message out we did but through unlikely means, had a fun and peaceful rally, like we had hoped to do in Charlottesville, and enjoyed the fellowship of other southern white nationalists. All in all, it was a profitable day for the League and our allies. This statement by Dr. Hill is characteristically positive, and that did not mention Antioch because, in fact, Antioch was a non-event, at least for the League, as it turned out. It was probably not long after 1 p.m. when we left Shelbyville. Our hotel was in Antioch. So on our return route, we traveled along the same path upon which we had come to Shelbyville. Passing through Murfreesboro on Church Street, we observed a long line of counter-protesters bearing all of the usual signs. The same signs with the same tired Marxist slogans which we saw in New Orleans in Charlottesville and in Shelbyville. They proclaimed love, as if any sort of love could pass for Christian love. They proclaimed that black lives matter, as if such a proclamation could ever make it true. If they really believed that strongly, that black lives mattered, they would be in the streets of Chicago or Los Angeles at night, trying to stop the beasts from killing one another over nothing. All we sought to profess was that white lives matter. So why should that stand in opposition to these self hating fools? Because Marxist indoctrination is a bundle of controversies, which those who are infected with which those who are infected can never recognize. Nearly all of the people we saw and photographed who were holding these Black Lives Matter signs, were white. In fact, at Shelbyville, we strained to count six Negroes in a group of 200 Marxists. And from our brief observation, it was apparent that the ratio at Murfreesboro was much the same. We did not stop there because the League had already announced it would not be going there. We heard that some smaller groups did go to Murfreesboro that afternoon, but we have not yet heard an account. Back to the signs. One young, red-haired white woman stood out. She bore a sign which said, Fuck white supremacy. We do not know whether she sought to denounce us or if she was proclaiming her own fantasies. Other whites held signs which said, End racism now. Plastered over pictures of Donald Trump as if he were anything close to being a racist. Or signs that said, make racists afraid again, afraid again, as if we were ever afraid at all. Other signs proclaimed no white supremacy as if man could overcome nature. And no Nazis in my America as if a single man could possess the nation for himself. His ball cap had a pink brim, but we would have expected that, even if we hadn't seen him. There was at least one Heather Higher sign. But as it turns out, the grossly overweight pig actually died of a heart attack several feet away from the path of the famous gray Dodge Challenger. The media will never correct the error, because they have already convinced the public of the lies, and it fits their own agenda To perpetuate the lies. The truth may not be officially available to the general public for years, and by the time they have an opportunity to hear it, the media will have a new drum to beat. There'll be some future Trayvon Martin or Heather Heyer, so as to distract them from finding it. Regardless of what we think of the counter-demonstrators their purpose at every one of our rallies is to prevent our message from being heard the objective of the anifa is not to introduce their own ideas to the public their college professors and the controlled media do that for them rather their purpose is to completely silence white right-wing dissent by any means possible When they cannot do it by numbers, they instead resort to violence like they did in Charlottesville. Now the media grouses that the white nationalists have claimed to have been the victims in Charlottesville. But the hundreds of videos of incidents in the streets proves us to be correct. The media just doesn't care. They push the same agenda that the Marxist white-hating professor Jesse Daniels pushes. The following court decision, and I'm putting all this in here for information purposes, not only for our readers at Christagenia, they know all this stuff, I hope, they already know all this stuff, but for normies who may come across this article. The following court decision is from a case labeled United States of America versus Roger David Handley and others. It stemmed from interaction in a criminal case between the Southern Poverty Law Center and the FBI, where depositions taken by the SPLC and submitted to the government were barred by the court. The criminal case resulted from a clash between the Klan and a group of Negro civil rights protesters in which there was a violent confrontation. The ruling was made in 1984. And it was reaffirmed in 1986, reaffirmed by that same court. Here is a paragraph from the conclusion which is pertinent to our recent experiences. It would certainly be incorrect and unfair of anyone, these are the words of the court, to surmise from this opinion that this court has sympathy for the Ku Klux Klan as an organization. This court agrees with the general understanding that the Klan is a vigilante group which undoubtedly from time to time violates the constitutional rights of citizens. I don't agree with that part of the decision. However, one vigilante group does not justify the creation and operation of a counter-vigilante group in violation of the constitutional rights of the first group. In other words, the Antifa has no inherent right to silence the right they don't (coughs) but the media is just accepting this paradigm as if it is just and it's not I'm not saying this because I expect um, justification from the courts or from the media I'm only saying this to show you the position that we're in that they don't care about law they don't care about case law they just broadcast what benefits their own agenda They don't care about what's right or what's wrong. That's why we have no political solution, and we don't have any solution in the courts either. To continue with this decision, this paragraph from the conclusion in the decision, the basic distinction in this case between the Klan and the Center, meaning the Southern Poverty Law Center, is that the Klan members were and are unsophisticated impecunious and, and ignorant of legal procedures. I'm surprised they didn't throw toothless in there. Whereas the lawyers and investigators at the center are quite sophisticated, socially acceptable, and well-financed. To tolerate a rape of the rights of members of the clan would be a recognition that some sort of double standard exists for the application of constitutional protections. A member of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference surely has every right to expect the federal courts to uphold and protect his civil rights. A member of the Ku Klux Klan has every right to expect the same. So as recently as 1986, we still have a right to make demonstrations and profess our message publicly no matter how odious some may think it to be regardless of how badly our enemies want to silence us and prevent us from speaking at all we cannot stop doing the things that we are doing we cannot stop making public demonstrations and appearances and in fact we should conduct them more often but of course I am only speaking for myself once again I am not saying these things because I think that we have a political solution. The courts will burn us in the end if we fall into the trap of the court system. We cannot trust in either courts or in politicians. And if anyone thinks, if anyone still thinks that Donald Trump is going to make America great again, they are five times the fools that they were last November. We have no political solution and we must continue to bring our cause directly to our people for that very reason, bypassing the political system and pulling people out of it. The day is coming when we may have no speech at all, either in public or on the Internet. Now, I'm going to say a few things here that I am not going to publish in print. At least not as I am going to say them here. I might publish them somewhere else, like on a Christoginia forum or something like that. This brings me to one more topic. And this is a hard topic, because many of our friends on the right, and even some in the League of the South, have faith in a man in whom they really should have no faith at all. First of all, Christian men should only put faith in Christ and in their fellow Christians. But what I am about to say, I have been saying for two years, or maybe longer, so it is nothing new to our friends and listeners at Christogenia. The reason why I have to discuss this is because many of our friends and listeners are wondering, and rightly so, just why I would attend a rally if the headline speaker was a Jew. one of the speakers at the White Vives Matter Rally certainly is a Jew. Mike Enoch is a Jew. In our opinion, his appearance was unfortunate and even a disappointment. However, we learned that Michael Hill himself did not invite Enoch to the rally and really did not even want him there. Rather, Mike Enoch was invited by others, and the invitation was made rather late in the planning for the rally. So Dr. Hill chose to honor the invitation. We cannot blame or criticize him for that. Because he chose to uphold a, another man's honor, even at his own expense. That is a noble thing to do. Without a doubt. We are not merely slandering Mike Enoch because we don't like him. Or for some other selfish reason. Mike Enoch is a Jew by his own admission. Some people have been hating on me for bringing this out, but the truth must be told. A lot of people like Mike Enoch because he talks a good game and he is entertaining. But he is not a Christian. He is often anti-Christian. And it should be obvious why this is so. Many of his followers and fellow workers are also anti-Christian. He has admitted being married to a Jewess after being exposed last January. And he has used that situation to shroud the fact that he himself is a Jew. It is my duty as a Christian, and especially as a Christian pastor, to sound this alarm and to keep sounding it until my fellows understand it. Mike Enoch once said, there is an absolute purist stance, which is like they, meaning Jews, are simply not allowed, in which case I have to go. He said that in a podcast called Rebel Shoah, Fashi Struggle Session, which aired on January eighteenth, two 2017. Enoch's defenders claim the words were taken out of context. But all copies of that podcast on the internet have disappeared. I cannot find one, not even at SoundCloud, where similar podcasts, I'm sorry, and similar services, where it is apparent that this and other of his podcasts were previously posted. If Enoch was truly taken out of context, we would think that the podcast in question would be readily available so that we could see that he took it out of con- that the words were taken out of context. But regarding the substance of such a statement, I find it highly unlikely that the words could have been spoken in any other context. These comments, and I'm posting a link so that you see them somewhere else, these comments are also published at the Semitic Controversies blog. There, the author calls this particular statement circumstantial. Here is the fuller exchange as they recorded it. Rufus, Musonius Rufus said, We've had people, someone who goes by the alias, Musonius Rufus, said, we've had people who've been removed from the forums, meaning the Right Stuff forums, I guess, because they were Jewish or had partial Jewish ancestry, who had renounced their ancestry in the past. That's an obvious conflict. Is that something that could be addressed? And then Mike responded, and he said, um... I think that in these cases, in cases like this, there's an absolute purist stance which is like they're simply not allowed in which case I have to go. The words of Mike Enoch. In which case I have to go. A little later in the same podcast Enoch made the following statement. But in terms of who's going to be part of this movement i would say yeah like you know it's got to be white people and really jews should be excluded and if you're going to let in a mixed jewish person they really have to have done something to earn that and in my case i did and i think in my case i did i'm sorry wow there ain't no way that you're gonna say anything like that if you're not a Jew here as we also found it at the Semitic Controversies blog we included the original URL for the podcast in which a couple of these statements were made but it is no longer found there we do however have the pertinent portions of the recording posted at the Christagenia Media Sharing website under the title, Mike Enoch Admits He is a Jew, with ProThink Commentary. And they were provided as part of a video commentary by Mike Delaney. We presented that video here several years ago on a podcast called Gatekeepers of the Alt-Right, or is it Alt-Wrong? Where there are Jews involved, it is always wrong. Our God is not going to bless our endeavors when we join ourselves to His enemies. He may tolerate our folly now and then, but in the end, we will suffer if we join ourselves to Jews, to Jews of any persuasion, even if they claim to be Christians. Now I'm going to play about five minutes of the video, of Mike's video on this subject. The video contains these statements from Mike Enoch and a few comments by Delaney. I'm only playing the first five minutes of it. But here, Mike Enoch clearly admits to being a Jew.
1: Well, I'm back for another session here. (laughs) You know, after I did the last two videos, a lot of my uh, viewers from over the years came to me and just gave me a whole bunch of stuff. A lot of people thanked me. Thank you for coming out, they said, and and being an actual face and name to uh not backpedal and do damage control in a situation and um and so on and so forth. Simply put, this dude right here is a Jew. That's all there is to it. This guy right here is a Jew. You know, when I when I saw a couple of things a couple of symptoms of of a Jew. I I didn't jump on the conclusion right away. People are like, "Oh, but look at him; he looks so Jewy." Uh, whatever, and they're like, "Oh, his last name it's it's Russian Jewish." Uh, yeah, I'm not gonna jump yet. But then I had three different audio clips sent to me, and uh, wow, I mean it's it was self admitted. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and play uh, three of these clips real quick here. Uh, one of them was this right here. But but in terms of who's going to be part of this movement, I, I would say, yeah, like, you know, it's got to be white people, and, and really Jews should be excluded. And, and and if you're going to let in a, a mixed a mixed Jewish person, then they really have to have, have done something to earn that. Mm. You know, and, and I think that in my case, I did. A mixed Jewish person. What first of all, what the hell is this shit that people run around with this oh it's only a quarter Jew, it's only a half Jew. It's a Jew is a Jew. Okay? Obama they don't run around, you know, calling Obama halfway. I mean, once you got that taint in you, you're done. Now people go, Oh, well you got pure DNA, you got pure this, pure that. Look, the dude's admitting to the fact he's a Jew. You know what I mean? There's a, a boatload of symptoms here we have wrong you know other than the fact that he admits his wife's a jew i don't know she just a regular jew she's a openly practicing liberal commie pro faggot pro tranny benign breath representative former employee of nbc and aol i mean come on now How much do I gotta throw this kikery in your face before you cut this dude off? And for that matter, the rest of people at TRS that knew about this shit off, too, they gotta go. They knew and they admitted to it that they knew that this dude had a Jewish wife. And then they played it off like they didn't know that, um, you know, she was involved in all this pro tranny stuff. Gotta excuse me, I got a cold and chest cold going on right now. But. Anyways, let me go ahead and play the other clip here, because that right there should be like, okay, that's it. But wait, there's more. You know, I used the word Jude in that kind of context yeah. basically my whole life. Yeah. And even what? amongst other Jews, I used the word Jew that way. Did you use... An- even amongst other Jews Jewish amongst other Jews so there's two times that it's blatantly came out that he himself is Jewish but wait there's more one of the issues that was brought up is we've had people who've been removed from the forums because they were Jewish apart from
0: Jewish ancestry who had renounced their ancestry in the past I mean that's something that's been brought up on the show before and I mean that's an obvious conflict I mean is that something that can be addressed um
1: you know I didn't I actually had never heard that before um, I think that in in these in, in cases like this it's really like you gotta you gotta just you know I mean there's there's an absolute purist stance, which is like they're simply not allowed in which case I have to go. In which case, he has to go. Now, look, you'll take people from over in this stance that will be like, um, well, my stance, take my stance, for instance. The guy's admitted he's Jewish. He's admitted his wife's Jewish. They come from a very Jew-y background. Um, We've had this before. Anybody that's researched Jews heavily knows full well that these people like to get at the forefront and run the show and control the descent, And a lot of people are convinced, not a lot, There's, I would say there's a very small minority now of people that even defend this tribe. But those people that still defend it, first of all they're either newbies out there, they're like fanboy base type individuals they're like, oh man, he's so awesome, he did so much for the movement. Which I would pose the question, what the fuck has manifested from the work of TRS.
0: Thank you, Mike Delaney. Aside from admitting, clearly admitting in those, in, in those audio clips that he is a Jew, Mike Enoch also has a mixed Negro brother, who was evidently adopted into the Pinovich family at a young age. There are many photos available on the Internet of Mike together with his Negro brother. This brother, named Matthew Joshua Thomas Pinovich, has a Facebook page that excludes his last name from the title, but still includes a photograph of himself together with Mike Enoch and Enoch's Jewish wife. Now, New Jersey is not the Bible Belt where the churches openly encourage white families to adopt black children. I also grew up in New Jersey, although in a much poorer town and neighborhood than the Pinevich family lived in. And when I lived in New Jersey, even though the state has been a liberal leaning state for as long as I lived there, the only sort of family I knew that would adopt a Negro child was perhaps a Negro family. Or perhaps much more likely a Jewish one. It was, so far as I remember, not until the late 1960s or early 1970s that Jews on a large scale began mixing it up with Negroes in order to set a poor example for whites. Now, this alone is not evidence of Enoch's Jewish background, but his own mouth has already provided that evidence on multiple occasions. Rather, this is evidence of a rather perverse family background for a supposed white nationalists. I would assert, however, that Mike Enoch is not white at all and he is not really a nationalist. He is just one of a long line of Jews who has managed to infiltrate and subvert a new political trend which in this case is the so-called alt-right. We have seen Mike Enoch also said, you know, I use the word Jude J-E-W-E-D I guess Jew as a verb which is what Jews do all the time even to each other you know I use the word Jude in that kind of context basically my whole life and so have I but then he says and even amongst other Jews I use the word Jew that way well I've never used it amongst other Jews because I'm simply not Jewish who would say that only a Jew could say such a thing And only a Jew would say such a thing. And even amongst other Jews, I use the word Jew that way. Mike Enoch is a Jew, which he has admitted several times with his own mouth. When he felt the heat from the exposure of his wife, this particular podcast disappeared from the Internet. Then the TRS Daily Show a crowd began to claim that the remarks were taken out of context. His followers merely parrot these claims, as I found at the League of the South events of last week. When on Friday evening, Melissa and I had arrived at the facility where the League was staying, hoping to find some fellowship, and we did. Almost as soon as we had arrived, I got into an argument when someone mentioned Mike Enoch, and not being able to keep my mouth shut, I offered my usual thoughts about him. As soon as I did, I attracted the, the wrath of a fellow League member. And when I withstood him, he got all butt hurt and refused to speak or to acknowledge me for the rest of the weekend. What a loser. I am not upset by that, but I will continue to stand my ground. I will not relent on this issue. The next evening, in the aftermath of the Shelbyville Rally, the League held a torchlight gathering on the facility grounds, a token replacement for the canceled trip to the church in Antioch. Mike Enoch was at the center of the group, so we abstained from joining in. Instead, we encountered Sacco Vandal, who was sitting on a couch in the cabin. At first, we did not even know who he was, but Melissa recognized him by the rather good speech he had made that afternoon, so we both thanked him for that. Sacco then overheard us talking about Mike Enoch, and began vehemently defending him. Several others of our good friends from the League were present, but we will withhold their names so that they are not involved unnecessarily in our disputes. Defending Enoch against the accusation of being a Jew... Sacco made the mistake of telling us that our God is a Jew. But while I offered him my Android tablet, he refused to sit long enough to listen to the admissions of Mike Enoch, and then he refused to talk long enough to listen to the historical evidence concerning Christ, which distinguishes Christ from the real Jews. I withstood Sacco to the point where, as he stormed out of the cabin, I slammed the door shut behind him and I don't regret it even though one good friend from the league said to me that I would never win him over that way I'm certain I won't he only dug himself in this is the danger of ecumenism amongst groups on the right and especially with these godless new-age leaning alt-right types having been educated by Jewish controlled media and Jewish controlled and a Jewish controlled educational establishment, most of them, even when they claim to be aware of the Jewish question, simply do not realize the extent of Jewish propaganda which they continue to accept. They're never they're never red pilled. They might be pink pilled, that's more like it. Once again, I cannot speak for the League of the South, but I have confidence in the Christian profession of its leadership. Before leaving the parking lot at Shelbyville, Dr. Hill commanded that we hold a prayer and specifically remarked that it would be a Christian prayer. Michael Tubbs, making another great example, took to one knee. I might be wrong, but it was at least least an hour before Mike Enoch even joined the crowd, and he and his crew walking directly to the front of the line at the first police checkpoint. That is how Jews do it. Always a little late, but brazenly jumping in line at the front of the parade. I have more to say about last weekend, and much of it I already said last night. The rest of my arguments, <laughs> looking for fellowship with the league. I will reserve the rest of my comments for another time. In the meantime, I would encourage all of our brothers and sisters in the South to consider joining the league. A handful of our friends showed up in Shelbyville, a few who have already joined the league, and there were some who, whom we didn't even really get the chance to talk to. We would like to see many more at next year's rallies. We thank those of you who joined us. Next weekend, next Friday, I will commence with Paul's second epistle to Timothy. And on Saturday, we may have our friend Don Fox on the John F. Kennedy assassination that's being contemplated presently. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night. Thank